0: Can you think of anything you really don't care about all that much, but you have friends or family members that do care a lot? Well, maybe it's sports or Marvel movies or a particular music artist or some trend that's all over social media. But yeah, you you really aren't all that interested. and In a sense, you could say you're apathetic about it. You don't care, and so you're not motivated to watch or listen or engage in those interests. And you know, apathy isn't always a bad thing. You don't have to care about most of those things. But what about spiritual apathy? Is that different? Yeah, I think it is. Spiritual apathy happens when we lack the motivation to grow close to God and to do His work. And that is a problem when we're not interested in that. In fact, it's a problem that's addressed by one of the minor prophets in the Bible. And the message of that prophet leads off part three of our study called The Twelve. Next. Hi, and welcome to Discover the Word, a Bible engagement effort of Our Daily Bread Ministries. And right now, our Bible study group of Bill Crowder and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day and Rasool Berry is doing a study of The Twelve the 12 minor prophets at the back end of the Old Testament. We're dedicating a 10 plus minute segment to each of them and exploring in our hour long podcast, the context and message that they delivered from God. And so now in part three of this podcast, we will look at Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and then spend some time reflecting on how all 12 of them are part of the bigger story the Bible is telling. So to begin this episode, it's a segment about Haggai, who had a message about something Israel struggled with that we still struggle with today. And that is an apathy about our relationship with God that needs to be addressed. And so pull your chair up to the table and let's continue this study of the 12 by focusing on Minor Prophet Number 10,
1: Haggai. Okay, so we come now to what some of you will think is finally The last few conversations on the minor (laughs) prophets. I hope you don't feel that way, but I would understand it if you did. This is not by any means familiar ground that we're dealing with, is it?
2: It's been new for me, uh, you know, and I've shared many times I'm not an Old Testament expert, but it's starting to make more sense to me. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, I actually have enjoyed learning some of the nuances, uh, refreshing on some of the details that you can sometimes lose. There is some heavy lifting you have to do in terms of the historical context and the framework, but it really, the payoff is great, especially when you see how much they are echoed in the New Testament as well. Mm. Yeah, and the way that they just
4: speak to today so well. There's so many of the struggles that we've explored in these Old Testament prophets that, yeah, it's different imagery and different ideas, but the struggles are the same. We can relate to the struggles. And yet also the turn toward hope in almost every single one as it looks forward to God making all things right. It just reminds me of how we're always living in that in-between between between what Jesus did and what he will do. And yeah, I think that's what's been encouraging to me is the way it speaks to the struggles that all of us have, but it also lifts those struggles toward the hope that all of us have too, which is that one day God will make all things right, which is what... More than anybody else in the Bible, I feel like they point to that better almost than
1: any other sections. One thing you get with the minor prophets is you get realism. There's no candy coating here. Hmm. I mean, everything is just unvarnished and raw and a hundred percent on target as far as the human condition is concerned, with Israel kind of representing that human condition in a larger sense. If I could kind of kick us off by bouncing off of something Rasul said, he talked about getting some of the historical context, that's kind of where we want to begin because in this conversation we're going to look at Haggai, and Haggai is one of the post-exilic prophets. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are grouped as post-exilic. Now some add Joel and Obadiah, but not everybody agrees on that. Everybody agrees that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are post-exilic prophets. So When we say that, what do we mean by post-exilic?
2: That they're speaking after the return from the exile.
4: Yeah. Yeah, and the expectation was that the exile would do this work to change their hearts and to make them into new people. And one of the themes that shows up in the post-exilic or after the exile prophets is that their hearts are still struggling to trust God again in Mm -hmm. a similar way to the
1: ways ours do as well. I heard it referred to one time as... In the post-exilic era, what we find is that Israel has returned, but they are not yet fully spiritually restored. It's those big blank areas in their spiritual life and their relationship with God that you're describing, Daniel. And some of that we pick up in the post-exilic historical books, which are basically Ezra and Nehemiah. So you have Ezra and Nehemiah, and you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Those are primarily the agreed-upon post-exilic books, and, and that's helpful because these are the last books that set the stage for the end of the Old Testament, which then kicks into what's called the intertestamental period, or sometimes referred to as the silent years, which is then no longer silent when John the Baptist comes on the scene and brings the word of the Lord for the first time since these prophets that we're going to be looking at this week. So this is very strategic stuff, and it's stuff that I trust will be very helpful to us as we move along. So they've returned home. They've returned to the land. And part of their mandate is that they're supposed to return home and rebuild what had been destroyed. Now, we know the theme of Nehemiah. Is rebuilding the walls of the city that have been torn down. The theme of Haggai is rebuilding the temple. And his whole message is about rebuilding the temple. And if I could just give you a little historical bit on this the people returned, they laid the foundation for a new temple, but when we come into Haggai, it's 18 years later, and the work has not progressed. It hasn't progressed, and the temple still lays in ruins, and that's really the problem that Haggai is going to address. So, Daniel, if you would read for us Haggai 1, verses 1 and 2, that'll kind of get us into the text and the theme of the book. In the second year of King Darius, on the
4: first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come for rebuilding the house of the Lord.
1: Okay, now there are a couple of things about that that are interesting. First of all, you have Haggai the prophet, then you have Zerubbabel, who's been appointed governor Mm -hmm. by the Persian king, and then you have Joshua, the high priest. So you have really kind of the power trio in the land at this moment, the secular ruler, the religious leader, and God's prophet and spokesman to the land. And when Haggai begins his prophecy, he begins with what the word of the Lord came to him saying, and the word of the Lord, and it emphasizes that this is what the Lord of hosts says. This people is saying, it's not time to build the temple yet. They are not interested in fulfilling a big part of the reason why they've been brought home. And there can be any number of possible reasons why they aren't interested in doing that. Can you think of any possible reasons that they might not be all that interested in building the temple?
2: Well, I think of the generational reality. You know, I'm sure they'd lost many of their elderly in captivity, and so therefore you lose the hands-on experience of God in the temple. But also, you, you just grow comfy where you are, And, you know, it's all about, well, you know, I don't go to church anymore, so I don't need to worry about the temple. It's, you know, when you stop going, it's like, you know, the space fills up with other things.
1: Yeah, in a sense, this post-exile generation is very similar to the post-wilderness generation of Israel back in the Pentateuch. And if you remember, the Pentateuch ends in Deuteronomy with Moses rehearsing for a new generation, the law that their ancestors had agreed to but failed to live up to. Mm -hmm. Now we have more than a generation has passed, 70 years have passed, and there's a big gap between the people who experienced the temple back in the days in which it was a magnificent structure and the ones who have now been called to rebuild it. And so Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a reboot going on for Israel here.
3: Yeah, I also wonder to what extent, like when I see the phrase, the Lord of hosts, like the warrior, mm-hmm. I'm wondering to what extent there might be fear attached to rebuilding the temple. We see in hmm. Nehemiah that there was provocation, to both the Nehemiah Ezra stories where them rebuilding the wall, them rebuilding the temple caused them to be seen as a threat. Militarily even. So I I wonder to what extent there could be even some fear attached to that, which is why Haggai is reminding them that they serve the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the one who is able to protect them from even outside dangers of them asserting or reasserting their own national identity as Mm -hmm. the children of God. Hmm. I wonder too,
4: kind of related to fear, but just the like, almost the throwing of the hands of like, we've been there before. Hmm. Right. We watch the temple get destroyed. Do we really want to do all this work again? And who knows if this is really going to stick this time and we're going to get to stay and, and all of that. Or even then the practical side of like, they're coming into a destroyed city. Maybe it's just really practical. And they're like, well, I'm trying to build the the space for my family to live right now. And I need to finish that first before Mm -hmm. I work on the temple, which you kind of get a feel for that in verse four. Where Haggai says, is it a time for you to dwell in your paneled houses Mm -hmm. while this house, meaning the temple, is lying in ruins? So it's almost like maybe practically, too, they're like, well, I need a space to live. And then once we get that done, then we can work on the temple or
2: something like that, too. But it's been 18 years. Yeah, I think that's (laughs) That's the larger
1: point is 18 years is a long time it appears their houses have been done for a while. Yeah, I mean, Um, that's
2: another generation, right? Yeah, I
1: think that one of the things that's very interesting about Haggai is, first of all, it's very short. It's only 926 words, and so it's very, very focused, whereas many of the minor prophets we've already looked at have a lot to say about idolatry, social ills, injustice, sexual immorality, all those things. This doesn't speak to any of that. It speaks to one thing, build the house, build the house, build the house. Hmm. At least in the research I did, it seems that Haggai is addressing a spiritual lethargy that has caused them to become really kind of like you said, Elisa. I've got my stuff going on. I don't really care about this other stuff. It didn't work for my ancestors. Why should I bother? And there's just not any kind of spiritual commitment involved in all of this added to the fact that it's quite possible and we're speculating here it's quite possible that some of these folks didn't want to move back to the land anyway they had been born and raised in babylon that was their home that's what they knew they are well and truly strangers in a strange land even though they might be ethnically jewish they are not jews of the land by any stretch of the imagination
3: You guys are making me think about a recent scenario that can kind of put us in these shoes where after the pandemic, where Mm -hmm. you had a long period of time for some a year, others over a year of not going to uh, the house of worship because of various different reasons. And there's a lot of that inertia that can set in that can make it challenging for folks to go back and to reintegrate into Uh, That sense of community. And I'm wondering if Mm -hmm. that's some of what Haggai is trying to address is just, you know, trying to challenge them to re engage after a period where they couldn't because they were in exile. Mm -hmm. It's laid Mm -hmm. idle
1: for, as we saw, 18 years. (laughs) It's going to take six years to finish this. Haggai isn't even going to be around when the project is finished. Zechariah is going to end up completing it. But you look at over 20 years from the time that they got there to the time that the temple was completed. To your point, Elisa, that's a long time. Mm -hmm. And you would think that within those years that it sat idle, that there would be some movement toward completion of the project. But Haggai is raised up as a prophet to address the fact that, no, there hasn't been, and this is not acceptable to the Lord who has brought them back to their homeland. So, Bill, as you're thinking
4: through this, a lot of what I've been hearing is very thematic toward rebuild the temple as kind of the message of Haggai. Is that how you would summarize it after spending time in that and leading us through that? Like what is that primary message of, of this book?
1: Well, I think the primary message is the need to rebuild the temple. Um, in Haggai 1, eight, it kind of gives us the theme of the book. It says, go up to the mountains, Bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. What Haggai is doing is he is reiterating to the people, this is part of why you were brought home. Let's not lose sight of that and do it. Now, for us, well, maybe the takeaway for us is how easy it is to slide into spiritual lethargy, how easy it is to slide into that kind of Apathetic kind of who cares sort of attitude and mindset. And that is a dangerous thing in any generation uh, for any child of God because it is easy to lose that passion, first love, if you will, that we had when we first came to Christ and and our hearts were kind of set ablaze by His grace and mercy. To lose that and to become spiritually apathetic is a very easy thing to do and I think to us this book becomes a warning about that spiritual apathy and the danger of it.
3: One of the things I wish we would have had the opportunity to lean into in Haggai was in chapter 2 there's this sense where he talks about the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And I thought that was really interesting, especially since there seemed to be some disappointment among those who built it about their final result. So, Bill, can you tell us about you know where things ended with Haggai and how that ends up shaping up for us?
1: Well, it's interesting because that is part of the underlying problem of the spiritual lethargy is that the previous temple had been built by Solomon Mm -hmm. using plans and resources that his father David had accumulated for him. And it was magnificent in every way. And they come back and most of them never saw that temple. They had no point of reference as to what a temple could potentially look like. And so when they finally get going, as we saw, they spent six years building this thing and It's interesting that Haggai ends up saying to them, who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? Mm -hmm. How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? I mean, there's just this sense in which, okay, finally after 20 plus years they get the temple rebuilt, but it's not even close Mm -hmm. to what Haggai remembers. It's believed that Haggai lived in Jerusalem before the exile, and he returned as a very old man. And he had seen the former glory of the temple and the way it represented God, not only to Israel, but to the world. And now he sees this new temple, and yeah, it's there, but it ain't much. And Mm -hmm. it's a great disappointment. And it kind of leads into our next minor prophet, who is Zechariah. Zechariah was a ministry partner of Haggai, and it's interesting because Haggai's, or Haggai, I say it both ways, his theme we saw clearly was rebuild the temple. Mm -hmm. Zechariah's theme is the glory of the Lord. There's almost a sense in which there's a bit of Haggai that's concerned about the glory of the temple, but Zechariah's concern is the glory of the Lord. And one of his major messages is going to be, No matter what kind of temple you build, no matter how magnificent it might be, it cannot even come close to the glory of the Lord that it represents. And so there's a very high bar being set by Zechariah. So let's try and get into it a little bit. And Russell, would you read Zechariah 1 verses 1 through 3?
3: Sure. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah son of edo saying the lord was very angry with your fathers therefore say to them thus declares the lord of hosts return to me says the lord of hosts and i will return to you says the lord of hosts do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out thus says the lord of hosts return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord.
1: Mm. Now, did you see a theme in there Yeah, that popped up about 50 times? <laughs> <laughs> the Lord of hosts. <laughs> yeah, the Lord of hosts. That little phrase, mm-hmm. the Lord of hosts, mm-hmm. comes up over and over and over again. Some 50 times in Zechariah, the phrase Lord of hosts appears, and the phrase thus says the Lord appears 62 times. So whereas Haggai was pointing everyone's attention to the temple, Zechariah makes it very clear he's pointing people's attention to the Lord himself. And there's a big difference between those two things. What Haggai was doing wasn't wrong by any means. He was doing what God told him to do. But there's a higher ground that Zechariah is calling the people to, that their focus would be on the Lord of hosts and his glory.
2: Bill, in reading Zechariah, to me, it feels so much like the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. It's so, to me, Lord of hosts, almost in times filled with visions and bizarre things I can't understand and get my head around. And that would be the part, I guess, if I'm hearing you correctly, that this is the Lord of hosts who is greater than the Lord of the temple, you know, the, the temple that he called us to build. And that's what it seems to me like in Revelation, John's doing too, is that in the end, it is all about God's character winning in the battles.
4: Yeah. And probably God's power and strength above all the chaos of life as well seems to be part of the
1: theme too. Yeah. There's something of the sovereignty of God in all this, that he is above the fray, and yet he is personally engaged with us as we go through the fray. Hmm. And I think that As we look at Zechariah in this conversation, what we're going to see is that there's a very clear pattern to what he's doing. And we talked some about literary styles. Haggai's style was just simple prose. Mm -hmm. Zechariah's style, he uses kind of a crazy quilt approach. (laughs) He has a series of eight visions that he records, and that's all that symbolism you're talking about, Elisa. And that's followed by four messages And the key to the first of those four messages is that obedience is better than fasting. (laughs) Fasting was one of the religious rituals that Judaism practiced, but again, it's like Jesus said to the people of his day, quoting Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that's really, I think, the point. They've gotten some of the ritual going again. but It doesn't have the heart of worship and the heart of devotion. So that eight visions are followed by four messages, and those four messages are all calling people to repent. And then it's followed up by two burdens. So you have eight divided by two is four, divided by two is two. So it kind of keeps drilling down, and it drills down to when the glorious Lord actually returns and is enthroned. And that's the final message. The final burden of Zechariah is the return of the king in Zechariah 12 through 14. So there's a very purposeful idea behind how he's presenting his message. And it's so complex and so diverse in its content that it's the longest of the minor prophets. Yeah. Bill,
4: I have a question that's kind of forming. So I'm going to I'm going to go for it. Go um, for it. So for in it. the passage that Rasul read one of the phrases that jumped out to me was turn back to me, I will mm-hmm. turn back to you. Mm-hmm. And then you just mentioned a second ago a major message is repent. But this is post exile so they're just getting back into the land. So what do they have to repent for already if that makes sense because they haven't been back very long. Mm -hmm. So what is that
1: message of repentance or turn back from what? Well, I think, again, because, as we've seen, Zechariah was kind of a ministry partner to Haggai. Some of it is repentance of the spiritual lethargy that Haggai addressed. And now Zechariah is telling them why. It's not just to build a building so that there's a building. It's because there's this glorious Lord who deserves your whole heart. And he's calling them, I think, to repent of that spiritual lethargy. And that's really where those four key messages come in, starting in chapter seven, verse one, and going through chapter eight, verse 23. The first message theme is obedience is better than fasting. The second message's theme is that disobedience leads to judgment. The third is if the people will repent, God will bless, And the fourth is that then they will celebrate. Fasts will become feasts. And Daniel, as you mentioned in the last conversation, one of the things that's been exciting to me about looking in the Minor Prophets, how they almost always end up in a place of hope and promise of something better that is to come. And the fasts turning into feasts is that moment of hope of a future celebration.
3: I'm kind of struck by how much is going on. In this book, I mean, we got (laughs) four horsemen, women in baskets, flying scrolls, clothes. (laughs) It's just a lot. How Mm -hmm. do we get to kind of try to digest all of these themes, even on our own, if you're just sitting there reading and it just not get overwhelming?
1: It's very difficult to read. And I think, Elisa, your comparison to the book of Revelations, a really strong one, because both are very heavy in symbols, And we don't tend to think in symbols today. We tend to think more pragmatically and more tangibly. And so I think because of the way we culturally have learned to process information, symbolism can be challenging to us and we can feel a little bit overwhelmed by it. Plus the fact that there's a part of us, I think sometimes it wants to nail every single little detail down so that we have every single piece of it intact. And sometimes I think, even though every single detail is important, and I don't wanna be misunderstood on that, every single detail is important, sometimes the big idea that the symbol is helping point to is maybe the more valuable thing. And here, all of these things are pointing to the glory of the Lord and His name and His honor and His character. That's what everything's pointing to.
2: Maybe one way to express that, because I'm I'm doing this exactly what you're describing, Bill, trying to get into the minutiae and understand it, and then I pop back up to the big picture. You know, as we're processing here, and maybe one way we've been talking about spiritual lethargy, and how you know Haggai really was speaking against that, and now Zechariah picks it up. You know, we become spiritually lethargic when we forget who God is Mm -hmm. and when we reprioritize ourselves and our little worlds, you know, as more important than him. And we can become just apathetic and unplug from it unless we pause and link back to God is our God and he is above all. And that's what really matters.
1: Yeah, and I think you're right, Elise, and I think with that in mind, I think it's really important that we put it out there that Zechariah has more to say about Messiah Jesus than any other minor prophet. Uh, We'll get into that in more depth in a later conversation, but I can tell you that for me personally, there was a time 12 or 13 years ago when I just kind of felt like my own heart spiritually was kind of going a little cold, and it really worried me because I don't think any of us want to be cold-hearted in our relationship with the Lord. I think we want to have that vibrant, dynamic sense of relationship with our God. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how to kind of relight that fire and get that going again. And what I landed on was I just started reading through the Gospels Mm. over and over and over again to once again just become kind of captivated with Jesus. And the more I read the Gospels, the more I felt that kind of coldness of heart going away uh, because it was exactly what you said. It was focusing mm-hmm. on him mm-hmm. and his person and who he is as the main point. And again, that's what Zechariah gets to in his two final burdens. The first one is that the anointed king is going to be rejected, and that's where we see a number of prophecies that are fulfilled during Jesus's passion. But then you have Zechariah 12 through 14 where the rejected king will be enthroned. If one of you would read Zechariah 12:10 and another Zechariah 14:9, that kind of brings us to Jesus in all of this. 12:10 I can read, but I will fill the house of David and the inhabitants
4: of Jerusalem with a spirit of pity and compassion and they shall lament to me about those who are slain, wailing over them as over a favorite son and showing bitter grief as over a firstborn.
2: In 14.9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name.
1: Yeah, the name above all names, we're told in the New Testament, will be that only name as the Lord himself who was once rejected and pierced and suffered on our behalf will now well and truly be glorified before the eyes of the entire human race.
0: And our relationship with that glorious Lord is priority one for each of us. Another great conversation about the message of one of the 12 minor prophets, the post-exilic prophet Zechariah. And much like how God used the words of this minor prophet to try and draw his people back to himself, the words of Zechariah may give you help and guidance back to him as well. Well, you're listening to Discover the Word as we continue to meet 12 men in the Bible responsible for spreading God's message of not only discipline and judgment, but also hope and reconciliation. And that was Zechariah, minor prophet number 11 of the 12. And so, question for you, does discipline always work? Parents, how about it? No, not always effective, is it? But then again, getting a parking ticket, having to be on probation, going to prison, those forms of discipline don't always work either. They don't always correct the problem. Well, now we come to the 12th and final minor prophet, number 12 of the 12, the message of the prophet Malachi. It's a message from God to the nation of Israel about 100 years after they returned from exile, an exile brought on by unfaithfulness and disobedience to God. And it's a message that indicates that the discipline of exile wasn't super effective. Malachi's is a difficult message from God that the prophet communicates in a unique kind of way. But it's the kind of message that Bill says is never easy to deliver
1: i have to tell you that in my preaching ministry as a pastor sometimes you just had a hard message that you had to deliver and if you love your people you have to preach the hard message but it's hard it's just difficult it's painful because you're dealing with issues maybe of discipline or chastening or judgment or correction and it's just hard to do that do you agree
3: Yes, uh, absolutely. You know, it's never enjoyable to, you know, give a word of rebuke or or challenge. And yet it is a way of expressing love just as much as Mm. giving a word of encouragement is.
4: Yeah, I think preaching it is way easier. Like it's easier to preach a hard message. (laughs) It's a lot harder when you're sitting around a dining room table with a family that is really struggling And you have to say something hard in that setting. It's a lot more difficult when you're looking at, you know, the two people and you're looking them in the eyes and you have to lean into things that both of them are doing that aren't good. That's hard.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I love that, Daniel. And, you know, I think one of the realities is that when we can take cover in our our office or the pulpit or our title or our age (laughs) or whatever our experience, you know, we can distance ourselves from the relationship. But, you know, even in leadership or in just relationship with friendships, you know, exactly, when we have to say the hard things. Lots of dynamics there.
1: I think there's a lot of different ways that that expresses itself. But that leads us to our final of the minor prophets, the book of Malachi. He has a very, 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 very negative message (laughs) But his positive purpose is to bring correction and hope. And uh, we see that throughout his relatively short book of prophecy, so just to kick us off, would somebody read the first couple of verses of Malachi?
3: Sure, I can. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Hmm. Why don't you stop
1: right there? That's really strong. (laughs) Um, God says, I've loved you. And you say, really? Mm. How? I mean, the answer that he would give to Jewish people in the Old Testament era might be different. But to us, I mean, how many times when something bad happens in our life, the first thing that comes to our mind is, I thought God loved me. Mm -hmm. Why is this happening to me? I thought God loved me. And God says, I have loved you. And we say, how? Well, and in our context, the only answer that matters is the cross, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he's loved us a, a million other ways too, but the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate expression of his love for us is Jesus taking the cross on our behalf. So again, this is a very confrontational book. It's a very negative message, but again, the purpose is to point the people back to the God who loved them enough to discipline them and then bring them back and and put them back in their homeland. So Bill for the
4: the people that received this message first and the cross wasn't a thing yet. Yeah. What would they have heard when he said I have shown you love? What is the love that they would be like, "Oh, okay, that that's it."
1: Yeah, and what God does in Malachi 1 is he reaches back into their national memory, and this is what happens all the time in the Old Testament. It's constantly pointing back, usually to the Exodus, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. But here, God points back even further to when he chose Jacob, and it was the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, who became the 12 tribes of Israel, and his chosen people, And he showed love to them by making them his own, by calling them his own people. And that included later bringing them out of bondage and then into a homeland that had been promised to their Hmm. father Abraham. So when God wants to remind them of his love for them, he usually points to their history. Whereas for us, Hmm. when we look back, we point back to Jesus and his history, in a sense, his story.
3: I noticed too, it's very striking that the way that this book starts with the statement from the Lord, I've loved you. And then the people say, how have you loved us? But I, I noticed a few verses down, the same thing is repeated in verse six. Uh, we see, "O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? Yeah. What, what's going on here with this mm-hmm. approach?
2: Maybe even more specific, what is the negative message? Because you keep alluding to that, and it might be good to get that out.
1: Yeah. Well, let me start with Rasul. And uh, we've talked a lot about literary styles and so forth. And what you've pointed out here, Rasul, is the kind of literary style of Malachi, which is he uses a debate format. So God puts a propositional statement out there, I have loved you, and the people debate, how have you loved us? And then he responds, now you come down to the verse you talked about, God puts another propositional statement out there. God says, you have despised my name, and they say, how have we despised your name? Again, it's that debate format going back Mm -hmm. and forth, and God responds by saying, You present defiled things on the altar and on the table. And what you bring as sacrifices is sick and evil and all these different things. And what you've isolated for us in chapter 1, Rasul, tends to be the style that he uses in this kind of debate format. Now, Elisa, when we talk about the negative message, the negative message has to do with the things that Malachi as God's spokesperson. Uh, remember, he's one of those prophets that is not necessarily identified as a prophet, but he is functioning as a prophet. Remember, there were three primary offices in Israel, prophet, priest, and king. The primary roles of the king were to administer the government, lead the armies, and be the final court of appeals for interpersonal disputes. Okay, The job of the priest was to represent the people before God and the job of the prophet was represent God before the people. And here we see Malachi doing that in his rebukes. And throughout the course of his rebukes, we're going to see several things in particular that he's going to bring as the primary themes of rebuke with a lot of subtexts underneath. The first is formalism. And formalism is when you adhere to the mechanics of religion without the heart of worship, when you're dealing with the externals, you know. And again, we've talked so many times about how the themes of the minor prophets can speak to us in our generation. I mean, how easy easy is it to just get into the habit, I'm going to go to church and I'll stand and I'll mouth the words and I'll sit and Mm -hmm. I'll kind of listen and then I'll go home. Well, that's formalism (laughs) that's the same thing malachi is warning israel about the second is a lack of gratitude which is the underlying problem to that first debate i have loved you well how have you loved us you talk about lack of gratitude i mean how have (laughs) you loved us and then the third is immorality and underneath all of those things there are things like sorcery and adultery and perjury and fraud And two of the themes that pop up repeatedly in the Minor Prophets, oppression and injustice. Hmm. All of these are the subtext to the formalism, the thanklessness, and the immorality. So through all of this, Malachi sees the only possible solution as a purging fire. Hmm. To purge and cleanse all of these things from the precious metal that God has called his people to be in his name
2: yeah yeah and in several places you've talked Bill about the significance of a given prophet's name Mm -hmm. and Malachi as I understand it it means messenger right and I think that's just really profound because some of the other names we've looked at at some of the prophets that we've looked at you know are things about you know remembering God or festive or you know just different but Malachi's messenger just kind of has italics around it doesn't it
1: Yeah, and some even think that because the name Malachi means my messenger, that that wasn't even his real name. It was a pseudonym that it was written, actually, some suggest by Ezra or Nehemiah or maybe even Zerubbabel using Malki, which is the Hebrew, or Malachi as a pseudonym. It's interesting in uh, the Talmud, which is an ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament in the Talmud, they actually credit the writing of this book to Mordecai. Where do we know Mordecai (laughs) from? From from Esther. The book of Esther, yeah, he was Esther's uncle. And in the Targum of Jonathan, which was another commentary, he added after the words Malachi, the words, whose name was Ezra the scribe. So there seems to be some serious thought that Malachi was not his name, that it was just a pseudonym that was used To signify his role as being the messenger of God, but it was actually written by somebody else. I mean, it definitely fits with
4: the theme of Elijah, which is how the book ends, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is this idea that in a way you could say the Holy Spirit in a like speaking through people kind of way is leaving the scene for a little while Mm -hmm. as we wait for a new revelation to come. But the echo of God's voice and the echo of what has happened up to this point is continuing. And in anticipation of, at some point, a new Elijah coming, or maybe even Elijah himself coming back. And that's literally how the book ends, is there's going to be another messenger coming. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be this Elijah figure who proclaims that the day of the Lord is here, that proclaims that the Messiah has come. Of course, some scholars think that the messenger is the Messiah as well, and so it's hard to know really which one that the original hearers would have have assumed. But the way it ends, Lo, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the coming of the awesome, fearful day of the Lord. Close the book. (laughs) Big pregnant pause. Now we wait. 400 years. Yeah, Yeah. that's
1: a big pause. (laughs) 400 years.
3: You know, Mm -hmm. the answer to your question, Bill, it just reminds me again of, the symmetry of the prophets, that their messages are so in line with each other that there can even be speculation that, well, maybe one of the other ones wrote, you know, one with this as a pseudonym. And not just the among them as the minor prophets or the prophets overall, but the whole entire message of the Old Testament when you brought up in chapter three, when he talks about he's like a refiner's fire and that he's going to be purifying And then I think about John in Matthew 3, talking about how one is coming, is going to baptize with fire, that that same theme emerges. And then to go from verse 4 in chapter 4, remember the law and the servant of Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. It goes all the way back to the announcement of the law, and then to Elijah, and then says, hey, and somebody's coming that is going to make the crooked straight, refine, purify us, and ultimately restore the hearts of each generation, fathers to children, children to fathers. And so I see in that a lot of Mm. the same harmony and melody that these folks are singing together with.
1: Well, we started these conversations kind of talking about why do the minor prophets matter? And one of the things we discussed was 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And part of our job is to figure out why it's profitable. And I hope that now that we've wrapped up our look at the 12 books themselves, uh, we've got a couple of conversations left, but I hope we have seen that there's great value and great profit in these books and that there's much that speaks directly to their generations but can be applied even in our current circumstances as well. I like what you did there, Bill. Mm
4: -hmm. We read these prophets, and in them is great prophet.
0: And that is the divine gift of not only this section of Scripture, but the Scriptures as a whole. Repeatedly, Scripture points us to the past to inspire hope for the future. That's what Malachi does. And as we've seen with each of the 12, there is always an element of hope, even if there is also an element of discipline to correct what's wrong. Well, those are the 12, the 12 minor prophets. And I hope you have a better understanding of them and their messages after having focused on them with us here on Discover the Word. And now they will take some time to close out this episode of the podcast to reflect on how the minor prophets contribute to telling the story of Jesus, how this part of the written Word of God points us to and helps us discover the living Word of God, Jesus. It's where this study of the 12 takes us after a quick break. Well, Malachi is number 12 of the 12, but your study of the minor prophets and the last few books of the Old Testament doesn't have to end just yet we mainly did a summary overview of each prophet and so there is still quite a lot to unpack in their writings and messages and the hope that they have for us today so i invite you to check out another one of our our daily bread ministries resources that i'm sure will help you continue this exciting journey check out our our daily bread university by going to odbu.org And on the heels of our conversations so far in this episode, use any of the names of the post-exilic prophets, that's Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, in the search bar at the top of the home screen. You'll see the course named Post-Exilic Prophets. And that is one that I highly recommend for anyone looking to go deeper into what we've been discussing in this episode. Enroll in this course from Our Daily Bread University at odbu.org about the post-exilic prophets. You know, one of our favorite books at Discover the Word is the Jesus Storybook Bible. Maybe a little surprising that a children's book is one of our favorites, but we've really been impacted by the way Sally Lloyd-Jones demonstrates how every story in the Bible whispers Jesus' name, and how she invites us to discover that Jesus is at the center of God's great story of salvation. The story beneath all the stories in the Bible, from Noah to Moses to King David, every story points to Jesus. As she says, he is the piece of the puzzle that makes all the other pieces fit together. Well, we've spent almost three episodes now studying the Old Testament's minor prophets, walking through each of these twelve books together. But now, to conclude this series, we're going to specifically see how this section of the Bible points to Jesus. And how that every story whispers Jesus' name perspective is true for the Minor Prophets as well. And how, in fact, doing something like this is something our ministry has been doing for over 85 years.
1: When Our Daily Bread Ministries was founded in 1938 by Dr. M. R. Dehan, It was founded as a radio program called Radio Bible Class. And the theme song to that program when it first started was the gospel song, Tell Me the Story of Jesus.
3: Jesus.
1: And here on Discover the Word, we've found that to be kind of core to what we try to do because a key part of our hermeneutic or how we approach the scriptures is to see everything in the Bible ultimately pointing to or finding its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And I think for these final two conversations, what I want us to do is to see how the minor prophets help to tell the story of Jesus and move that story forward with prophetic insight. And uh, to kind of launch our thinking on this, Daniel, would you read for me Luke 24, verse 27? Just to set the context, this is Resurrection Day, and it's on the Emmaus Road, and Jesus comes upon two of his followers, and they're all disoriented and confused about the things that have been happening (laughs) in Jerusalem with Jesus' crucifixion and reports of an empty grave. And so this is Jesus' response to them in Luke 24, 27.
4: Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets... Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures.
1: Okay, so you have Moses, which is the Mosaic law, and then what was the other? Prophets. All
2: the prophets. All
1: the prophets. That includes the ones we've been looking at these last three weeks, all the prophets. So what I thought it might be good to do is just take a look at some specific verses from the minor prophets that are quoted in the Gospels specifically, because All the Old Testament points to Jesus, and then after the Gospel of John, the rest of the New Testament sort of explains Jesus so that he becomes the the central figure of the entire Bible. So if we're going to begin with something, we might as well begin with his birth, uh, which is a good starting point. Micah 5, verse 2.
2: Who would like to read that one for us? I've got it. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity.
1: And this is alluded to, I, I may have said quoted earlier, but in the very least, it's alluded to in both Matthew 2 and Luke 2 in both of the gospel birth narratives by citing that it was in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Now, Why was it important that he be born in Bethlehem?
3: Yeah, I've always connected that prophecy to him being the son of David and Mm -hmm. the fact that that Mm -hmm. was where David was from. Mm -hmm. That's right.
1: And because he was born in Bethlehem, it kind of validated his lineage in the kingly line. We have this fascinating moment in Luke chapter 2 where, in a sense, the Caesar of Rome puts the entire world in motion with this census, just to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so Jesus can be born in the right place. It's a fascinating thing that, to me, always puts me in mind of the statement in Proverbs that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like a river of water, he moves it where he wants Mm -hmm. it to go. And Mm -hmm. at that point, he wanted it to go Mm -hmm. to Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. and So they end up in Bethlehem, and and that's where Jesus is born. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Now, another one, which is a little bit harder for some people to get their minds around, is Hosea 11, verse 1. What's that have to say?
3: When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son.
1: Now, this is directly cited in Matthew 2, verse 15, and uh, it has to do with, if you'll remember, when Herod made the proclamation to kill all the babies in Bethlehem, and an angel appeared to Joseph saying, flee to Egypt, and they go there for a period of time. And Matthew 2.15 says, And they were there until the death of Herod. That was what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Now, if you read Hosea 11.1 1, as you did, it's talking about Israel. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But here, it's applied directly to Jesus. So how does that work? Well, it depends. If we
4: were... Holding Matthew to the same standards that we would hold each other, we'd probably take some points off <laughs> for, for misusing the scriptures. But there's a bigger story going on than sometimes yeah. even we notice, even those of us who spend lots of time studying it.
2: Mm-hmm. I love that, Daniel. That's exactly right. <laughs> I go back to that overarching, every story whispers his name. And you think about, you know, that God truly did call his son, his country out of Egypt under Moses, and and then (laughs) it continues calling us out of all of our Egypts. And then it is literally Mary and Joseph and Jesus the child brought forth out of hiding in Egypt. So, I mean, again, so many layers to understanding.
3: Yeah, I would say on the surface, like you said, not an intuitive reading of when you see when Israel was a youth, I loved him attributing that to Jesus. But I think when I start to think about it a little bit deeper, I think about, for instance, the times where Israel is personified as a son, even Mm -hmm. by name, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. sometimes using the name Jacob to refer to all of Israel. So you see those elements, but then on the flip side, you see Jesus himself being the representative of all of not just Israel, but of humanity, where he's referred to Mm -hmm. as the second Adam, Mm -hmm. but more specifically living out and fulfilling the law Mm -hmm. completely. In that sense, it starts to feel a little bit more normal. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah, And I was going to say Mm -hmm. you've kind of wandered into theology here a little bit, but you didn't (laughs) wander. You went there on purpose and I love it because I think all the things that you guys are saying are correct. But I think, Russell, you're really on to something because there's a sense in which Israel was God's son who failed, but Jesus was the ideal son who didn't fail, who was perfectly obedient in every way. And we see something similar happening in the prophet Isaiah where you have this section of servant songs. And in some of them, the servant term idea is referring to Israel. But in other ones, it refers specifically to Jesus. And there we see Jesus is kind of the fulfillment of everything God longed for Israel to be, but they failed in it. Jesus perfectly accomplished it and fulfilled everything the Father sent him here to do. Now there's a couple more. Let's get to Malachi 3, verse 1. Who would like to read that one? I got it.
4: Behold, I am sending my messenger to
1: clear the way before me.
4: And the Lord whom you seek shall come to his temple suddenly. As for the angel
1: of the covenant that you desire, he is already coming. Yeah. Again, this is said by the gospel writers uh, to be fulfilled in John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. In fact, Mm-hmm. Matthew 3. Yeah, Matthew 3 and Luke chapter 1, verse 17, the message of the angel to Zacharias before John the Baptist was even born. There's going to be a messenger. And it was interesting, in our last conversation, we were talking about Malachi, whose name means my messenger, and now it's going to be my messenger. And it's a messenger in the heart and spirit of Elijah, we're told in Malachi. But it's fulfilled by John the Baptist, who was the one who would prepare the way for Jesus, who is the ultimate messenger and representative of God to his people. One last one, and in Jesus' story, this jumps us way forward, but it's Zechariah 9, verse 9. Uh, Rasul, can you get that one?
3: Yep. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, Mm -hmm. humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And what's in view there?
2: Well, it's quoted in Matthew, right? Palm
3: Sunday.
1: That's that's a Mm -hmm. triumphal entry. So, Mm -hmm. So we've seen the minor prophets telling the story of Jesus from his birth to his return from Egypt to his forerunner who prepared the way, now all the way to his public entry into Jerusalem where, in a sense, he presents himself to the people as their long-awaited messianic king. And even though in the moment they seem to accept him, we find out that in just a few short days that acceptance wasn't very real or genuine. Here we have all the prophets speaking to Jesus and telling his story for us and i just think it's fascinating how some of these minor prophets maybe the only time we ever look at them is at christmas time mm-hmm. or at easter time <laughs> but yet they are contributing to this one great story that the Bible's trying to tell us
0: and yeah, so we've got one more segment now to conclude this study of the 12 and In just a moment, we'll pick up how the Gospels tell the Jesus story after the triumphal entry and see how connected the minor prophets are to the events of Passion Week, the week that ends with Jesus' trial and crucifixion and burial and resurrection. And I think we'll see how the 12 continue to whisper Jesus' name. That part of the conversation is coming up after we take a moment to look ahead to where the group will be going for our next study. Next time we get together for the Discover the Word podcast, we'll start a new study in which Elisa will be leading us on a new adventure looking at a recognizable figure in Jesus' life.
2: As we open up our scriptures, we're going to spend 10 conversations on one unique life that in all of the roles that he occupied on this planet, in every single one of them he lived a life that pointed to Jesus
0: yeah he isn't one of the minor prophets but like them he does point to Jesus and he guesses as to who he might be well join Elisa and Bill and Daniel and Marta Han as they look at this man's life and see how he wasn't even the main character in his own story find out who he is in a two-part episode of the discover the word podcast about John the Baptist called a life that points to Jesus
3: And now the conclusion of this study about the 12. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about as we reflected on the minor prophets and especially Jesus being the kind of fulfillment and the epitome of what it meant to be the Son of God is just how it's such a reflection of how much we needed uh, Jesus as a son. Like, you know, whether it was coming back from exile and still... The children of Israel not learning the lesson to put God first or if it was just even the way that they treated each other and Mm -hmm. the injustice that the prophets emphasize is such a reflection of the fact that they don't measure up to this image and standard of God it just seems like Jesus is the ultimate person that the prophets have been pointing us to because as the one who comes out of the water and the Father says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, you know, listen to Him. He demonstrates and pictures for us what it means to image God in terms of our relationship to Him, you know, spiritually and with each other ethically. That's a
1: good way to kind of start our final program because it takes us back to a comment you made in an earlier program, Daniel, where we talked about the failings and the disobedience of Israel, and you reminded us very wisely, I think, that we still fail and disobey, and we have the benefit of having the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. to empower us. Mm -hmm, Because mm -hmm. Jesus came and has given us the Spirit, we have an empowering and an enabling that they did not have in the Old Testament time. From time to time, the Holy Spirit would anoint a person for a specific field of service for a specific moment in time, but they did not have the abiding indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that we have been enriched with. And I think that's why David, when he confessed his sin with Bathsheba, he said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I mean, there's a sense in which we never have to pray that because the Holy Spirit has been given to live with us and in us. And we have that empowering, that enabling to do a better job, hopefully, of bearing God's image to the world. If we'll just allow him to do that good work in us and through us. So as we come to this final conversation of the minor prophets, it's been quite a journey, but we, in our last conversation, we began to wind up our journey by talking about how the minor prophets specifically helped tell the story of Jesus. And we looked at that verse in Luke twenty-four twenty-seven, where Jesus says to his disciples on the Emmaus road, it says, "...then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets..." He explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We said, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable. How is it profitable? It's profitable because it tells us about Jesus and it points to him. And we saw, beginning with his birth, then his return from Egypt, then his forerunner, and then ultimately even bringing us to his triumphal entry, statements in the minor prophets that either were quoted or alluded to in the Gospel records. Now, we've been brought into specifically Passion Week, and it's amazing how many of the details of Jesus' suffering and passion are talked about in the Minor Prophets. So let's begin with Zechariah 13, verse seven. Who'd like to read that for us?
3: I got it. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of Hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones.
1: Now, that's quoted in part by Jesus himself in Matthew 26, 31, mm-hmm. and again in verse 56, where mm-hmm. they come and arrest Jesus with mm-hmm. clubs and swords. He says, All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. But in 31, he specifically says, All of you are going to fall away from me this night because it was written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens in Gethsemane as Jesus is arrested. All the disciples forsake him and flee and are scattered as Jesus is taken into custody by a kind of a compilation of temple guards and Roman soldiers and troops. And it's just interesting how Jesus himself points to that statement in Zechariah as kind of kicking off what's going to start his season of suffering with those beatings and that abuse.
2: You know, we talked in a previous conversation about how, you know, this is telling the story of Jesus and we talked about the allusion to every story really expresses something of Jesus. But I'm really floored at how it's only Jesus who can accurately quote (laughs) the minor prophets, you know, and really show to us where they tie together. I mean, it's like a dot to dot that only the divine mind can truly understand that he would pick up that quote from Zechariah and connect it in that moment in the garden with a sword, with his disciples. It's mind boggling that he's God.
1: Because on a human level, certainly, like you're saying, that's a fairly obscure verse. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But yet it perfectly describes what's going to be the beginning of his sufferings. Let's look at another verse from Zechariah, and that's not a surprise because we saw that Zechariah speaks more of Messiah than any of the other minor prophets. Zechariah 11, verse 12.
4: Then I said to them, if you are satisfied, pay me my wages. If not, don't so they weighed out my wages 30 shekels of silver
1: yeah and that's alluded to in matthew 26 verse 15 with judas and jesus's betrayal in twenty-six fifteen, judas says what are you willing to give me to deliver him up again give me my wages And they weighed out for him 30 pieces of silver as his wages.
2: Now, would that be a customary amount for such a betrayal? I mean, it's the chief priests who are weighing it out.
1: Um, I don't know what a customary amount for betrayal was, but it was a customary amount for the cost of a slave. Uh Hmm. So there's a little bit of a kind of secondary Hmm. imagery there.
4: Yeah, Bill, I have a question on that too. So, in the last one, Jesus says, "So that the scriptures may be fulfilled." Yeah. Da 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 da. Then quotes this one. It doesn't say anything about the scriptures. Yeah, it just says thirty shekels of silver. Mm-hmm. So, how do we know these two are connected?
1: This is kind of how scholarship approaches how the gospels, in particular, utilize the Old Testament. There are quotes, like we saw Jesus directly quoting Zechariah. And then there are what are called allusions, which is a veiled reference where Mm -hmm. there's a dot and there's a dot, and the reader is called upon to connect those two dots. And that's what's going on here. We've talked about Richard Hayes, who's a New Testament scholar, and Mm -hmm. he has written extensively (laughs) of all the little tiny times like this where there's a dot in the Old Testament and a dot in the New Testament and the wise reader is expected to connect those dots and make that connection. But again, this is one of the things that's fascinating about it, because in his Pentecost sermon and following sermons in Jerusalem, Peter makes a lot of these dot-to-dot connections in his preaching with some obscure verses that he finds connecting to the story of Jesus. And it's interesting that when the religious leaders examine him they kind of take stock on him because he's untrained. He didn't have extensive training in the scriptures, but he's connecting these dots. And then it says, "And they took knowledge of him that he had been with Jesus." And so there's an implication there that maybe he had learned his hermeneutic from the way Jesus connected
3: the dots as well. Hmm. Yeah, and I would say too the proximity of these verses. So you take verse 12 of chapter 11 of Zechariah, where it talks about the 30 pieces of silver, and then you go to the next verse, right, mm-hmm. and see. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them, sarcastically. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. That's referenced yeah. in the next chapter in Matthew 27 when you know, with the potter's field. And so uh, uh, just another example of the illusions. But the thing that's been helpful to see in light of this journey through the minor prophets is, is that the immediate context of Zechariah is talking about the Messiah and it's talking about the ways in which the people of God have broken faith with God. And so it really fits the mm-hmm. actual context that we see in Matthew, which mm-hmm. is about the Messiah and people breaking faith with him.
2: It's yeah. an echo, it's a re- repetition, yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: and we see this over and over and over. And sometimes it's a more general thing, like you say, Rasul, with a potter's field. And sometimes it's a more very, very specific thing, like Micah 5, verse 1. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Mm. Well, in Matthew twenty seven thirty. It says, and they spat on him and took the rod and began to beat him on the head. Now, again, there are dots there where there's an illusion, an echo from that Old Testament prophecy that the wise reader is supposed to connect those dots. And because we spend very little time in the minor prophets, Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have as easy access to some of those dots. Let's look at one more. This is one of the more profound ones. And it's the first one of these that's really cited in the Gospel of John. Would somebody read for us Zechariah 12, verse 10?
2: I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him, as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn.
1: Now what makes this one I think really fascinating is that it has echoes going in two directions. In Psalm 22, a psalm of David, which was by the way written like 600 years before crucifixion was invented, mm. the elements of crucifixion are clearly described. They pierce my hands and feet, David says, and so much of that, starting with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is not only quoted by Jesus on the cross, but it is alluded to during the crucifixion event. We see the piercing anticipated in Psalm 22. We see it prophesied in Zechariah 12. And then we see it fulfilled in um, John 19, verses 34 through 37. Who could read And maybe read 34 all the way through 37. So John 19, verses
4: 34 through 37. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, another passage of Scripture says, they will look on the
1: one whom they have pierced. They will look on the one whom they have pierced. Not a bone will be broken is actually a reference to the Passover lamb. And here we see Jesus as the ultimate and ideal Passover lamb, just as in other places we've seen him as the ultimate and ideal Israel and perfectly the ultimate and ideal image bearer of the Father, But here it says, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they've pierced. Here he's not asking us to connect the dots. He's doing it for us Mm -hmm. by pointing us back to the prophecies of Zechariah. And I just think it's really valuable for us to be reminded that, as we said in an earlier conversation, it's always important to keep the big picture in mind. But all the details matter. Mm -hmm. And all of these points of connecting the dots are some of those details that are in there just to remind us, I think, of what a magnificent gift we have been given in the scriptures. The way all of the scriptures come together and interact with one another to tell us of how much God loves us and the price that he was willing to pay to rescue us from our sins and restore us to relationship with him. And And even in this, they shall look upon him whom they pierced." Man, that's heavy, and it's supposed to be, I think, because the prophet warned that that was going to happen, and now in the presence of people standing at the foot of the cross, including John, who wrote this, it's happened, it's been fulfilled.
0: a three-part study of the 12 the 12 minor prophets and i hope you found that this study of hosea through malachi those 12 short prophetic writings that close out the old testament helpful as we've said throughout this is not a section of scripture that we go to often Uh, most have not ever spent a significant amount of time digging into the context and the messages of each of these prophets but having taken time to focus on each now and get some handles that can make them more memorable. I think it's plain to see that they do make an important contribution to the bigger overall story that the Bible is telling. And what they say about God, and what they say about things people struggled with back in their day are important for us to hear today. Thanks, Bill, for leading Elisa and Daniel and Rasul through these conversations. Great job of helping us value the 12, the 12 Minor Prophets. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Well, here at Discover the Word, we love seeing how God continues to actively work through the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible. And as one of our Discover the Word friends puts it, these studies have blessed me so much and have helped me understand all these Bible passages. And did you know that you play an important role in making these studies possible? Well, consider being a financial Discover the Word partner by checking out the donate tab on our website at discovertheword.org. Thank you for helping us make the Bible a vital part of everyday life for more people around the world. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Henning. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.